Through our short life as a nation, we have been challenged by many crises. We have been challenged by political, economic, social crises, as well as natural disasters. And every time that we have been able to overcome these challenges, it has informed the nation that we are today. The way we respond to the challenges brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic will define the kind of nation that we become. Hello, and welcome to The Gray Spaces, a podcast and blog dedicated to exploring the hazy overlaps of history, culture, politics, and society in Belize. I'm your host, Andre Marsden. In this episode, we'll be talking about adapting to a post-COVID-19 world, what aspects of our society will see the most change, and what will be the most important changes for us as a nation, our communities, and as individuals. You're listening to The Gray Spaces. This is not the first time our country has been here, suddenly having to adapt to a new normal. On October 31st, 1961, something that looked like a storm at first caught the country, and specifically Belize City, off guard. The storm was actually a Category 4 hurricane that had formed in the Atlantic Ocean two weeks before and moved toward Belize with winds of 140 miles per hour. Hurricane Harry went on to cause a massive amount of devastation, killing around 400 people and destroying half of the city. It is estimated that the hurricane caused Belize around 60 million US dollars in damages. Back then, weather prediction instruments were not common. By the time an announcement was made, it was too late for an effective evacuation. So, to many people who were out carrying on with their lives and jobs, seeing the gray clouds approaching unaware that a hurricane was upon them, it all seemed to come out of nowhere. Very much like the COVID-19 pandemic feels to many of us. After the hurricane, survivors were faced with the arduous task of rebuilding their lives. Many had not only lost loved ones, but their entire livelihoods, their homes, and their sense of security. What will adapting to a post-COVID-19 world be like for Belize? Melanie Smith, who is pursuing a PhD in sociology at Dalhousie University in Canada, shares this insight. The question of how long will societies need to adapt to crisis or it will be dependent, first of all, on national decision-making apparatus. The national decision-making in Belize is very much in the hands of technocrats and elected officials. So it's going to be a decision between, are we going to make a policy for a public health emergency or are we going to make a policy for economic recovery? And I think that's going to be the determinant of how normal it's going to be. Are we just going to be more concerned about getting back to how things were as much as possible, bearing in mind that we are in the middle of a pandemic that is just rising globally and expected to continue for a long time. The focus is on the inevitable economic not on solutions and the decision is going to be how to reclaim the economy and not how to reconfigure the economy so we can establish something more diverse. Experts have expressed concern, especially about the impact the pandemic has had on our industries. What can we expect moving forward into a future of economic uncertainty? And most importantly, what can we do? Dr. Leroy Almendares, director of Beltrade, advises that we have to be ready to hit the markets running. This is a case of being proactive when it comes to economic recovery. There will be a need for us to ensure that we do have an environment that makes us even more attractive and conducive to foreign and 
local investment because there'll be a, a lot of great competition. What I have encouraged and what we need to do is quickly think about how you can use the very resources that you have in order to meet the demands. COVID-19 has created its own demands. And so quite a number of entities are still surviving because they're diversifying their offerings and meeting the demands that are created. Instead of lingering on the loss, Dr. Almendara says we need to take advantage of opportunities that COVID-19 has brought our way. He states that by prioritizing areas of investment, the scarce resources available can be targeted to expand key areas. This is an opportunity to focus or refocus our priorities on those areas that will help to make up from the short term or the downturn in, in tourism, for example. It's not like saying we're just setting tourism aside. No, I mean, the time will come when that recovery, and I'm sure that, you know, the, the partners are being discussed with. But at this point in time, you know, citrus and sugar and some of the others might be a focus where you can find greater markets, for example, an expansion of production. But we must be ready because there will be a serious competition. The infusion of technology, you know, let's be very frank about that. When we had to transition and go virtual, those who are not able to do and some have not done so yet, you must infuse that. So in other words, digital systems and automated systems will have to be in place to, again, create greater efficiencies because there will be global competition. Dr. Almendara says that we need to take advantage of our geopolitical location and aggressively explore new markets within our regional trade partners. We also export within CARICOM, and so it's a case of finding new products that we can get into CARICOM. And, and let me quickly say this, that a number of the countries will import goods from outside of CARICOM because the quota that they want cannot be met by the countries within CARICOM. So that's an opportunity. There is a common external tariff that is applied, and so therefore, if you get a waiver, if you will, if you were to import products because it cannot be met from within CARICOM, then it means you have products from outside that become competitive with what we can produce. So we should find ways, and we used to talk to you know, the private sector, the farmers, the Mennonites, for example, and say, here are some opportunities. But it's just if you're willing to make that investment to increase your production because there has to be a constant quota. And that happens even in, with trade agreements that we established. We have one with Guatemala. They're working on one with Mexico. And, uh, you know, there's also a negotiation with Taiwan that is nearing completion. It's easy to make the determination on an aggregate level what is actually available. So there are many opportunities you can explore, you can test, think about additional products, you can think about hybrids to make the cells more attractive because once you see the markets are fully open, then, you know, really it's a matter of having quota. Because once you start to trade, you have a greed quota, which means you have to deliver this on a consistent basis. And if you can't, then it means that that will then be taken to some other country. And while the CARICOM Secretariat called for greater collaboration among CARICOM states moving forward, sociologist Melanie Smith says the pandemic will change the way we work with and rely on regional partners. We're also going to look at globalization and regionalism very differently. We're going to have to think about how we insert ourselves, like I said, in the global market. But we're also going to question the relevance of regional blocks like CARICOM and SICA because we are already seeing that supply chains that are going to be affected later on are going to impact how we do business. 
when we think of regional blocks, the whole idea is that coming together as small nation states, we have better buying power, we have better access to world markets. But when we think that one of the things that's going to be affected would be, you know, air travel and the logistical supply chain, we're going to question how easy it will be to do business with our own partners and then how difficult it's going to be for us to enter the new global labor market or the global economy. She emphasizes that adapting to the economy in a post-COVID-19 world will require a shift in mindset. Some new markets are going to emerge. Some strong markets are going to collapse. We're going to look at some markets that are going to adapt to the new way of life. Like I said, this pandemic is not going to be over because the numbers have gone down. It's going to take a while and it's going to shift economies. How much we can adapt and become resourceful to the needs of the new global economy because if everything goes back as is in Belize, the global economy is going to shift in many ways. And as we're seeing now, the dependence on knowledge workers and the creative class is, you know, it's very high. So can we enter those kind of new economic systems? Dr. Almendares says all the pieces of the economy will need to work together to pull us through this economic contraction, including the public and private sector. That puts specific emphasis on skill development and there has never been a more important time to ensure that academia and educational institutions form part of the economic recovery plan. According to Melanie Smith, the education sector will experience significant changes. I think education is going to be the one that will be most impacted. When we look at what makes a society competitive, and I'm using just one of the theories that I tend to like, which is Richard Florida, he says, if you have technology, tolerance, and talent. These three things are the three things you need to be competitive and the three things you need to put your society in a position where people feel attracted to go there or people feel attracted to doing business with. Key to properly preparing students to function in a post-COVID-19 world, both intellectually and mentally, is reforming the current used curriculum, which focused on preparing them to enter a workplace that had never been through a pandemic. With the sudden changes that the economy, industries, businesses, the work market, and employers have seen, what new skills will students need to develop to be equipped for a world post-COVID-19? Here's what Melanie Smith suggests. Our education system is going to have to look at, you know, the, the social level, the social interaction, and giving students and young people new skills in terms of how we interact with each other at a social level. When we think of tolerance as a dimension in our economy, we often don't think about how important that is in you know the economy. We think of tolerance as a value for the individual. But when I talk about that, and even when we look at what theorists say in terms of tolerance, it's referring to diversity, our ability to adapt to diversity, to diverse people to diverse opinions, to diverse ways of doing things and diverse ways of being. So that's what that dimension of talent looks at It's saying. There are many, many ways and we have to adapt to how things are going to be now. One of the things with tolerance or intolerance, for example, is refusing 
to change and adapt to new ways of doing things. And this can be detrimental to how you reclaim your economy in the future. COVID-19 caught many schools off guard, especially when it comes to technology, as many were not prepared to go fully digital. Vice Principal of Belmopan Methodist High School, Jamil Martinez, told us that they struggled to quickly transfer to Google Classroom and scrambled to organize students and teachers to venture into digital teaching and getting parents involved in their children's progress. Now, the process is smoother and the management is focusing on a post-COVID-19 response, with the main response being how to tackle challenges in finance for both parents and the school. Ms. Martinez shares the quick response the school enforced to ensure students' health and safety. When we first heard about the COVID, we built an outdoor basin, and I believe it has about maybe eight pipes for our students to wash their hands and make sure that they're clean at all times. The management is still discussing other safety measures that we'll be able to take. I believe the dropping off of food and people coming into the campus will be looked at as well. Schools have had the difficult task of responding swiftly and efficiently while balancing the protection of students and teachers and ensuring that learning and education continues. Students have also experienced a major and sudden change in their lives. We spoke with a third form student to learn about her experience. The first week, I think, or the first two weeks were a little bit stressful just because maybe some teachers were not in accordance, so some would send work like a lot at the same time and meeting deadlines, but then it kind of slowed down a little bit, so it was more achievable. So I think it went, it was well overall, and like the work was good to like keep me occupied and so that my mind is not like too idle. I definitely learned more and especially for me like every assignment like I took my time and I made sure I did it well and I feel like I learned more and it's always good to practice especially with like I feel like strengthen my writing and vocabulary and all of those things. The most difficult part perhaps maybe the fact that we have to stay home and it's not like our choice which is kind of weird. And also like occasionally like economic struggle, but it has been okay for me. It hasn't been like a super terrible thing that like traumatic experience or anything like that. Because sometimes like, like mentally, like I would like out of nowhere, like I wouldn't be okay. But I think like I've, I've been okay for the most part. And I thought like this whole thing might have like taken a toll on my mind like worse than it has like it barely has so I'm like happy about that and I hope it continues this way and I'm trying to like keep my mind busy and positive you know because it's easy like when you don't have things to do like for your mind to start like thinking and you know like destructive thoughts I'm not much of a social person but I've had this one person that we've been talking and it's like a good source of communication because sometimes there's just like random people nothing comes from it then there's others that actually like help you and like you feel like you're helping each other and it's keeping you in a positive mood is there anything that you miss about being in a class environment i think just like the day-to-day things that like the routines that we would have you know like with my friends and going from class to class talking with them, like helping each other with work and things like that. 
When you think about going back to school at some point, how does that make you feel? I think that it will be happier to be there and ready to work harder because like it's not like it's just me like everyone went through this so then like everyone will have like this kind of new feel to them we'll all be motivated to work harder and to get back on track like we'll appreciate everything more even the little things because like sometimes we'd be at school and then we're like oh I don't like this but then like we we were forced to be out of school and then like we missed the whole environment and the experience and working So I think just like being there, we will appreciate it. But that school environment that she and all other students across Belize left might not exist anymore. The average day would change completely. Normally, you know, we would have a break. Students would congregate together. That cannot happen, I believe, if this continues the way it does. I guess children would be eating in isolation. We haven't spoken about that as a management, but break and um, lunch time, children cannot gather as they used to. The basic thing that we're looking at is the seating, the number of students that will be in a particular classroom. We are considering taking less students for the new intake of first form. We're looking at the seating arrangement. We're looking at the idea of removing group activities altogether. A mask will be a part of the uniform. That has already been discussed, but I know a lot of people find the mask quite uncomfortable. And so we will have to do some campaigning when it comes to the wearing of the mask and wearing of the mask properly. We live in Belize where, where, it, where it is hot, and so we will have to do a lot of campaigning in getting the children on board with the idea of protecting themselves through the mask. Experts agree that social distancing will be a priority, but it admittedly will pose a challenge for primary school students, especially in schools with low resources, whose classrooms host an average of 30 to 40 students with little space among them. Counselor at the University of Belize, Renee Wentz, shares other changes likely coming for students. Particularly in Belize, we're very touchy. We're people that love to hug and kiss and touch each other a lot. And that is going to be something that people are going to have to self-train to stop. And touch is a human need. So I think that is probably going to be one of our biggest challenges in the next year or so, is how are we going to express affection and care for one another without touching each other. When you talk about social cues too, if people are wearing masks, often it's hard to be able to understand social cues. There's research that shows that our determination of what a message means, our interpretation of a message is only about 10% the verbal words, the actual words that people are using. The rest is body language and facial expression. And so if we're taking out quite amount of facial expression, if the nose and the mouth are covered, we only have the eyes to really work with. Wentz suggests that adapting to these changes has been hard on students. She states that she has seen an increase of students requesting counseling for anxiety, while those students who already suffered anxiety have seen it exacerbated. She also says she has had reports of suicidal thoughts. Jamil Martinez tells us her experience with students. 
speaking to some of the students that they're already used to a particular routine, they told me that they found it very hard being at home, uh, the uncertainty, not knowing what is going to happen, um, how long they will be out of school, how long they will be um, on this curfew. That created a lot of anxiety for them. While mental health issues are not new, limitations brought on by COVID-19 limit face-to-face counseling, which can leave many vulnerable people without an outlet. Professional counselor Amy Jex says there has been an increased use of telehealth to respond to those needs. It's becoming very consistent, but again, it goes back to access. Who can do it are the people who have that internet, who have the possibility to pay online. And one of the things I should add is I was contacted by Sagicor recently, and they are starting a pilot program for telehealth that will be covered by Sagicor Insurance. So this is something new for us where the insurance companies are being open and encouraging telehealth because we see that we won't be able to go back to what we were. There will be limitations. There will be needs that still need to be met and not everyone will be able to travel. Counselor Renee Wentz shares some insight on new challenges facing students and skill sets they will need in order to adapt. I think probably the most important skill that people will need to develop, and it's a very difficult skill for people to do. Students who come into a regular university environment have a difficult time developing this skill, but when we're at home, it's much harder, and that's time management. Particularly if you have classes that are not meeting at a particular time, they're open-ended for you to go and watch a lecture or a webinar, or something of that sort, it can be difficult to self-motivate. And so that idea of setting a schedule, even though you're at home, following that schedule, getting up at the same time, going through the same rituals that you need to go through, and then making sure that all the academic pieces that you need to do, you're meeting those needs. Another one is creativity. We have students that live in villages, uh, particularly in Toledo, that don't have electricity. So they definitely don't have internet. They tend, these are students that tend to live in Punta Gorda during the semester, rent a house. But of course, when this COVID hit, everybody went home. And so students now are left without access to the materials they need to complete online courses. So they had to be creative of finding someone to go and stay with that had internet access. And again, obviously time management is really critical then because you may not have um, access for a long period of time to uh, internet source. Of course, financial management is going to be a huge one. Most people are going to be financially stressed. And again, this is not a new issue for students, but it's going to be increased. Vice Principal Martinez says that one of the most important things the school is concerned with is the financial stress that the pandemic has brought on households. COVID-19 has uh, financial implications on, I believe, all households, and that goes with the tuition that comes into the school. So we would have to, and we are looking at payment plans, We're not looking at increasing the fees or even lowering the fees. 
but we are looking at things that we can um, do better at. One would be the book list. We're looking at what we can cut out. We're looking at what the school can provide to the students and to the teachers and to make life a little bit more normal for everybody. Preparing students for new work markets and business environments is a challenge for schools, especially when there is still uncertainty about how the workplace will look in the near future. But what changes are we seeing already? Dean Flowers, first vice president of the Public Service Union, talked about changes the pandemic has brought to government workers. He said that apart from some employees working from home, others have been rotated within workplaces to ensure social distance and safety measures, and that staff has become more digitally savvy and more responsible with their work. Overall, he said, these changes have been good and the new ways of working electronically help combat corruption. Definitely, uh, you'll see a lot of more service delivery being done electronically. There will definitely be less human interaction, which will ultimately, in my view, considering the nature of the public service, could be a good thing because it eliminates a lot of human contact, especially in revenue servicing departments. So that in and of itself will be a benefit for the government because once you don't have that human contact, it also helps to reduce corruption, briberies, and those sort of things. So I think that will be the biggest change that we'll see. Once you're dealing with people digitally, you're looking at a flow of information. So there is no real incentive and you can easily then trace these applications for services. You'll be able to see time. You'll be able to see who lodged them. And so eliminating that contact, it might not necessarily eliminate it 100%, but it eliminates the probability that people would be tempted to hold back on people's application or whatever services they're applying for. I think e-government is the way to go because I think that is where the, the world is going. Flowers spoke about the changes employees have been experiencing at a personal level and why the union is proposing a reduction in work hours. It has also helped employees to become a little bit more responsible and disciplined in how they approach their work, both from a personal hygiene perspective, as well as from a professional perspective in that now there is less oversight. And if you're working from home, if you're doing job rotation on a day in which your supervisor may not be in, it gives you a, an additional sense of responsibility because of the pandemic, because of the reduced work hours, what we're seeing is more smiles. We're seeing less rushing in the morning. I am hoping that the different ministries are seeing more productivity. The demand on families has changed. It is clear that the 8 a.m. hour isn't working for most working families. We have lost a lot of value. We're taking care of our families are concerned because we're caught up in this 8 hour a day and 45 hours work week. Clearly, it's, it's an ongoing study in, in developed countries, but other countries have already adopted reduced working hours, you know, considering that you can only give the best of yourself for a certain period of time. So having people at work for eight hours might not be yielding the kind of productivity as in having them at work for only six hours. This pandemic has devastated our way of life, but it also presents a wonderful opportunity for us to start having innovative discussions you know, and establishing new norms and new way of how we live and work. Flowers emphasizes that it is important to transition into a form of evaluation that prizes deliverables and outputs rather than clocking in. 
The union is eager to have this conversation with the government, but the severe impact that the pandemic has had on government finances has had a negative impact on their ability to negotiate. But there is something that the union will not compromise. What, as a union and as workers' representative, we will not compromise, however, is workers' health and safety. You can't replace life. That is how negotiations with government will change for the public service union. We will always have to now put health and safety first and ensuring that there is financing for that before we look at the economic aspect of future negotiations. And negotiating for employee protection has arguably never been more important. The high risk of contagion that COVID-19 brings with it means that workplaces will need to provide safety equipment and workspaces with social distance capacity for employees. Dean Flowers comments that these protection measures may seem new, but they are part of the proposed Occupational and Safety Hazard Bill, or OSH Bill, which has been in process since 2014 and is yet to be implemented. Flowers says that implementing the OSH Bill continues to be an urgent matter, and with COVID-19, the conversation should again become center stage, because every employer should ensure that their employees are protected. When we talk about people's safety, we need to ensure that we have all the mechanisms in place to ensure that people are safe, that when they leave their family at home and they come to a place of employment, that we protect them from all forms of injury, whether health-wise, whether financial-wise, whether physical-wise, whether emotional-wise, that we, we have an all-encompassing legislation that keeps them safe and allows them to return back to their home safely. COVID in and of itself brings along with it its own set of safety standards and safety practices, but that does not eliminate the bigger and wider challenges being faced by workers within the country where the OSH bill, the OSH bill covers both the safety standards for COVID and other communicable diseases as well. And more importantly, you know, just occupational safety and ensuring that when I step to a work site, that I will have available to me the equipment that I need. The environment in which I'm being subjected would be free from hazards that could result in injury or death. Another factor that is causing anxiety and uncertainty among employees is retrenchment. Retrenchment is a reality that the public service union and all workers of Belize must keep at the back of their heads as we return to work or as we continue to adjust to the current uh, situation caused by COVID. I don't know at what point in time the government will say to us, we need to now have that conversation. I really cannot say but it would be irresponsible of us not to say to our membership that retrenchment is a reality. We don't want to ever have to deal with it, but it's a reality that we may very well have to deal with if things do not change and change rather quickly for the government of Belize. Change for the government of Belize, says Flowers, is urgent, stating that the government's current wage bill and excess spending have to be seriously reformed. Flowers' position is that the government needs to trim the fat at the level of executive spending before cutting expenses for lower level staff. He stated that the government knows where their biggest expenses are and what reforms need to be made. 
In the coming months, it will boil down to survival of the fittest, says Flowers, and employees need to ensure that they are producing at maximum level. However, he is very frank about issues plaguing the public service that need to be addressed to ensure maximum productivity and that the best employees form part of the public service. There will need to be a reassessment within the Ministry of Public Service, a reassessment of the ability of those people within that ministry to identify the top-level and the high-level employees because part of the breakdown of the system, part of the reason for the poor services being rendered within the public service is as a result of the failures in the Ministry of Public Service in how they employ people. And so if you are not employing the best individuals and the most competitive individuals, then of course your service delivery will be poor. And that is what we're currently experiencing. In the private sector, I know competition will, will prevail. In the government sector, we will need to reform how is it that we're governed and how is it that, that we're administrated to ensure that if there is retrenchment and when there is an opportunity for employment, that we have the best people within the Ministry of Public Service to be able to make that determination to keep the best employees in the system and to bring in the most competitive and most qualified individuals. Because what we're living and what we've seen over the years is that decisions are made purely based on political expediency rather than economic value and quality results. According to Melanie Smith, another important area in our transition into the new normal will be self-sustainability. When we talk of economic recovery, yes, it's about revenues, but in the end, it's about ensuring that people have food in their plates, that food security is going to be super important for Belize. There are various food sustainability models that communities in Belize use. One model that is ensuring food security in some communities is subsistence farming. In our previous episode, we brought you the story of San Antonio Village in the Cayo District which saw COVID-19 significantly affect their economy as more than 100 people lost their jobs when the tourism industry halted. History teacher and community resident Delmar Zib says that food security has been paramount for the community during these times. I see a sense of security in the village. I mean, it has to do with the sense of being at home, but it also has to do with the idea that many of these persons, particularly the male and heads of the households, have a background in agriculture. So before they went into tourism, or even if they went into tourism directly, they already know that they have a background, at least land where they can do some sort of farming. So to an extent, and I am not talking, I do not want to generalize, right? But to an extent, there's that feeling that we still have hope because we still have an access to food, we still have the production of food. Over the past month, I've been hearing a lot of people saying, look, yeah, the economy will, will, will probably crash. We're going to have economic challenges in the future, but at least we're going to have food. The community of Spanish Lookout is using a different system, which is a model of collaboration that ensures the community's prosperity and survival. Farming grains and raising animals is central to community life in Spanish Lookout. When it comes to agriculture, the community farms corn, beans, and rice. And although the individual farmers sell to agricultural processing factory, Belcar, they are also free to sell outside of the community, 
When it comes to animal production, the community produces chicken, beef, and pork, and dairy products for the purpose of supplying to cooperatives they have established. The cooperatives are owned by the farmers themselves, who are shareholders, and are managed by a board of directors chosen from the shareholders. Profits are shared as dividends among shareholders and are also used to reinvest in infrastructure and fund expansion. Albert Reimer, a Spanish lookout resident who holds a degree in agriculture, tells us about the economic and production model the community operates. Reimer was also the chair of the board of directors of Belcar for eight years. The companies that buy the eggs and the poultry are owned by the farmers that grow those products. Persons who grow eggs or chicken, they have to have a contract with the cooperative that buys it from them and processes it and delivers and sells it. Farmers of specific products are free to keep an amount for themselves as long as they meet the quotas with the cooperative. Reimer says normally, families produce more than they need. When it comes to grain farmers, they're free to keep for their families at the time of harvesting. The families who do not raise animals usually buy from the cooperatives established and not directly from animal producers. So the same produce farmed in the community ends up in consumption in the community and also for sale to outside consumers. Reimer says that the model of working is as old as the Mennonite community itself, and it has always been their way of working and living, since they established in Belize in the 70s, and even when they were in Mexico. Reimer emphasizes that intricate to the success of the model is the sense of community. He explains the advantages of working within this model. One thing is, when it comes to uh, food processing facilities, it's very important to have economies of scale to be a, both efficient and to have good quality and consistent quality. And for you to have economies of scale, you have to be ensured that you have the supply, that you have people that are committed to, to grow a certain amount per year so that you can depend on it. And you know when, when those animals will be available so that you will have a consistent inflow of animals. Uh, yeah, they also influence uh, that are, are raised and, and how big the animals get before they're slaughtered and so on. Because they, they monitor the quantity so they don't have surplus and they're not short on um, the supply. But it also has some disadvantages, he says. If you have a contract with a company to sell your animals at a certain time for a certain price, they tell you when your animals are going to be slaughtered. They tell you when you're, you're getting a new, for example, the baby chicks, when you get a new bunch. You're not as free to do what you want with your animals. And if you were just doing it by yourself, then you would yourself decide what age you wanted to slaughter them, how big you wanted to grow them, what, when you wanted to get new, new baby chicks. And so on. So you'd have more flexibility and on some of those things. And also, you would be flexible on deciding on what price you wanted to get or if you were satisfied with the price or not. Apart from seeing their community's social life affected by the COVID 19 pandemic, Albert Reimer says that the community saw a significant drop in demand on animal produce, which the farmers had to respond to immediately by putting a stop to hatching to curtail the oversupply of chicken. Recovery has been slow. However, in the area of grain production, the farmers saw the opposite effect. The shutdown saw an increase of demand in beans and rice, as people were buying more non-perishable goods and less meat and dairy products, which perished faster. For both models of community self-sustainability we spoke about, one thing is indisputably necessary, land. You have reached the voice mailbox of... Six, one, five, two.
Please leave your message after the tone. When done, hang up or press the pound key. Sorry, but the user's mailbox can't accept more messages. That was one of many phone calls in an attempt to have a conversation with Commissioner of Land Wilbert Vallejos. We also sent several emails with the questions for our interview. For us to be able to have a conversation on the topic of land, there are several important questions that we need to answer, such as what is the step-by-step -step process for land acquisition? How many applications were received in the last year? How many applications have been resolved? How many are still pending? How many people in Belize own land? And what are the obstacles hindering the process for land acquisition? Answers to these questions is what land activist Nigel Patillo is trying to secure through his new movement, Land Advocacy for National Development and Sustainability, LANDS. The obstacle here is that information is not made privy to us. It's hard to go to the land department now and get the information that I want. They will tell me, well, there's no land, you need to go and look for land. How do I look for land? Where can I start from? Can you show me where the last land was given out? I need that information from the land department and they are making it hard now. Patillo tells us about how owning land will help people through the pandemic. If a man owns his own piece of land, he could definitely take care of it himself. He could definitely plant his own food. I plant a lot of food. I'm excited about it. My kids come there planting me. We're excited about having our own food that we planted. It's high time now that this discussion be on the forefront and we come up with solutions now. All the poor people want is a piece of land so that they could build their homes, they could plant their food, so that whenever another pandemic like this comes along, we won't be so dependent of the government's pantry. The culture won't be affecting us because we'll be able to stay in our homes, we'll be able to plant our food while at home, eat our own food, and so the pandemic wouldn't have been so harsh on us. He talks about other obstacles in the process of land acquisition. If you want a piece of land from the government, you will have to go to an era rep in your era, that person who asked for your vote, the person who you would potentially vote for in the era, either red or blue. And most of the time, it's the color in government that would be able to recommend you. So you'll take that document to that minister, and the minister is looking to see that document to make sure that you are a favorite of their team. That's basically what it is. You don't get a recommendation from a minister for a land if you are not liked by that minister or if you don't support that minister. So right there, that's a hurdle for the grassroots man already. And he also talks about cultural barriers on the way to food security. I could tell you based on my experience, I was taught in school, don't be a farmer. Farming is for poor people. So I was taught to go to school, study, become a secretary, go and work for someone. Agriculture is the way it is. We just haven't been taught it and we haven't been taught to appreciate it. It's a situation where we're coming out of a colonialism mindset versus being independent. We were always taught to wait and have your hands out and we're going to bring it for you versus you go and make that for yourself. It's a paradigm shift for the Belizean man right now. Now my movement is trying to have you understand the importance of land ownership, the importance of proper land management. We try to teach you that you, as an individual, as a Belizean, have a right to own a land. Most Belizeans don't think they will ever own a piece of land because of the money that's associated with it. Most of them believe that you need to have a whole lot of money to own a piece of land. We also spoke with someone who has tried to navigate the land acquisition process. She has requested that we don't use her real name, so we'll call her Jackie. When I got for the Agagera land there, and I'm in the Assemble one, and they want to tell me if I could say any land was vacant, any land out there where nobody built on, and then make I come back on. Tell them. When I'm a good final land, and I'm a tell all of a sudden, the young lady can tell me somebody already have the land. When I get to find out the person, when I have the land, died, I never have nobody to believe. You know, you never have no person to pass it down to. The people I take land and sell the land, so they 
Jackie says that after trying twice, she gave up on the process and has been renting in Belize City for more than 30 years, which has been marked by a life of instability as she has been moving from one house to another. On average, her rent amounts to $600 per month. We did the math and in 30 years, Jackie has paid a total of $216,000 in rent. Nigel Petillo says that although there are many obstacles for Belizeans to access land and acquire self-independence, he is inspired by what he saw at the meeting on Sunday, May 20th, 2020 at Cotton Tree Village. This last meeting that we had, or attempted meeting at Cotton Tree, showed me a lot. I saw a lot of black people come out. I saw a lot of youth women and they had to get out just to sit down about the, the gamble or the smoke weed. They came out that day from Belize City because they've understood. So my organization is here now trying to tell you that the reason you're in a poverty you want to continue to be poor for a while because you don't own land. Because you don't work for somebody, you don't pay somebody rent every month, you don't buy food for fast food people every day. But if you have your own piece of land, I have a change. If the government is serious about change and developing this country, you equip the small man with his own piece of land. And he has to be stressed out, but have, have to pay somebody rent. He has to invest in other things like education for your children, like paying land tax where the government could use the tax and do more work to the country. So land ownership amongst grassroots people is my mission. That is what I want to ensure that each believes at least own a piece of land, it's not one, one whole farmland. Melanie Smith emphasizes that in Belize, there are enough resources to ensure food security, and the government should be facilitating a way toward that goal. In Belize, we have land in so many places, and we could farm in small spaces. We don't need large tracts of land. But if you think about right now, some countries are giving out seeds to families and they're focusing on home gardens and backyard gardens and telling people grow your own food because this is for the long haul and I have not seen that being one of the strategies that they have taken. And she is not alone in expressing those sentiments. Dr. Leroy Almendares also emphasizes the importance of food security in the coming months. Because of the pandemic, you know, the country then has to focus on food security. At this point in time, if a country is able to feed itself, that is a big start. Transitioning into the new normal brought on by COVID-19 will definitely be a test for countries and communities. The decisions we take now will have a resounding impact on generations to come. In a recent interview with the BBC, Prime Minister of Barbados and current chair of CARICOM, Mia Motley, emphasized the importance of governing with the future in mind. You have to govern for tomorrow because tomorrow is coming. And if you only govern for today, then you will undermine the very ground on which you stand for tomorrow. So look, we, we have to be sensible enough to know that we're in this for the long haul. The statement that I've told my people all the time is to stay focused. And once we stay focused on the mission, then it becomes that much easier to overcome it. We believe that we can have a meaningful life after COVID, but we have to protect what we do during it. You've been listening to The Gray Spaces, a podcast and blog dedicated to exploring the hazy overlaps of history, culture, politics, and society in Belize. Today's show was written by Ingrid Furlow with contribution from Andre Marsden. 
If you enjoyed today's show, feel free to reach out to us and let us know. You can find us on Facebook as The Gray Spaces, on Twitter as Spaces Gray, and you can check us out at grayspaces501.blogspot.com, where you can find photographs, additional information, and discussions that don't fit into our episodes. I've been your host, Andre Marsden, and you've been listening to The Gray Spaces.